Welcome to the Les Spellman Podcast, where we redefine how athletes develop speed by giving them the tools to play faster. So what I'm going to go through, talk so a little bit about biomechanics, a little bit about myths, a little bit about um, misconceptions about speed, but it's, uh, it's really good. So I'll dive in. Most of the athletes that I meet have been sprinting with a specific strategy for a long period of time. It's not the first time they sprinted, right? They've been sprinting since they were young. They've obviously got to a high level, uh, either in the NFL or in college or wherever they are. Um, they've been, they've been affected. So it's not like it's the first time they've ever sprinted. So a lot of times they come to me with a good amount of bias, with a good amount of, um, I would say confidence in what they're doing, right? Um, since 300,000 years ago, like we've been sprinting for a long time. Um, you know, a lot way back when, uh, there was no speed coaches, right? You either, you either didn't survive because you weren't able to eat because you weren't able to kill and hunt and do all that. Or, you know, you, you basically got fast enough to, to run after your prey and go kill. So there wasn't speed coaches back then, obviously. Right. Um, but if you look at like us compared to other animals, um, when it comes to sprinting, we're actually pretty bad. Like we're not, we weren't meant to sprint. We're actually meant to cover distances and run more endurance type, uh, more endurance style hunting where we were out running over courses of, you know, distances to, to achieve our goal. Uh, we weren't really set out to do high speed running and high speed sprints. We're actually awful compared to other animals, uh, which is interesting. You know, and this is something I had to go back and look at and just see like, were humans meant to run 27, 28, 30 miles per hour? The answer is really no. So it's something that has to be taught and it's something that has to be developed and sprinting. Although running is a skill that we are born with sprinting at high speeds, not, not, isn't necessarily the same. Um, so. If you were to start golf today and you, you went out to a golf uh, or take your kid to a golf instructor, there's a good chance that that's their first time that they've ever done that skill. So they weren't born swinging a golf club. It's not an innate movement. It's not something that is, um, you know, they're born with that skill. Like they have to learn it, which means that they're going to get a lot better very quickly. Whereas most people have run before. So. Like I said before, if you show up day one and you're 22 years old, I'm not like, Hey, there's this thing called running and sprinting that we're going to do. You've never done it before, but it's really cool. Like everybody's done it. Right. So it's something that is very difficult to work with athletes, especially higher level athletes, because it's something that they've done thousands, millions of times. Right. So here's what happens. This is called motor learning. So when most athletes come, they have a perceived ability. They think they're good. Right, they're autonomous. They think, I've done this for a long time. I'm good at it. I don't know how much faster I can get. And they've probably been taught like, hey, if you're if you're fast, you're gonna be fast. If you're slow, you're gonna be slow, right? They've developed a bias. So what we do is we tell them, hey, look, you're you're not that good, right? So we make it cognitive. We we find a problem, we get them thinking about that problem. During that time period, they do actually get worse. Right. Because the first time I make an intervention, a coaching intervention, 
an athlete's going to become aware of it and they're not going to be slow. They're not going to be moving the way they were moving. They're not going to be uh, attacking the way they've been attacking. It's going to be difficult for them to be fast and powerful at the same time. Now, what happens over time is they start to become into this associate associative phase where they understand what they're doing wrong and they understand how to fix it, but they bounce in between the two. So sometimes they do it wrong, sometimes they do it right, but they become aware of what's happening. They do get slightly better, right? And then we get to a new ability and now we have a new autonomous phase where they're like, okay, I got this and we'll go to my season, I'm gonna kill it. I'm just gonna work on making sure I get my exposures in and I'm good. And this happens every year, even with our guys that are in the NFL 10 plus years, every year we get back to this cognitive stage and then associative and then back to autonomous. So this process starts with analysis, right? So just high level, let's, let's take the combine. We start with an analysis. Here's how you run. Okay. We make you very aware of how you run in phase one, part of phase two. Towards the end of phase two, you start making big adjustments, right? You get to a point where you feel like, Hey, I might've got this before you have more doubt at the end of phase three, just because it's like, Hey, like, is this the right thing? Is this the right guy? Do I have the right teacher? Am I doing this right? And right before we get to the combine, we have assurance. Okay. This is the right thing to do. I'm on the right track. This happens year after year after year. This is my seventh combine, sixth or seventh combine. Every year it's the same process with athletes. All right. So most of the time guys come and they're like, I've been taught all these things. Technique is everything. Speed can't be built. Speed is genetic. It's all about my struggling. It's all about my frequency. I have to run on my toes. Like we've heard all these things. Only lifting makes you faster, right? We've, we've heard these things and these, these create biases. And when I look around the industry and I look around what people are doing and I go on Twitter or I go on Instagram, you see a lot of things that don't really apply to making someone faster. You know, it's pretty common now that like, we know that speed gliders don't make someone faster, right? But 10 years ago, that's what everybody was doing fast feet, don't eat all that stuff. Right. So most of the industry, it, it is, is kind of like spread. Like there's groups of people doing different things and not all those things are built on, um, science, not all those things are built on reality and truth. So why would we want to get faster? Right? So the first thing I look at is, is opportunity. So when I look at our NFL draft class in 2021, I saw that there's a, a 0.15 second difference in your speed could be worth millions of dollars. So if you look at the, this is rounds, NFL draft rounds, round one, round two, round three, round four, the difference between round one and undrafted is pretty significant, right? Pretty significant. So you look at the difference is 0.12 here, 0.15 here, pretty significant. So when I work on uh, teaching these athletes at 22 years old and I'm like, Hey, like if you get this fast, you could potentially be in contention for these rounds. We're talking millions of dollars, but it takes a lot of time previous to this point. So like if you get to the point where we're training for the draft, it takes a lot of time before that to get to, you know, be fast enough. Like you have to get faster in high school. You have to get faster in college. You can't just show up and take off it a second and speed, like you have to be in contention, at least close to improve. 
what's the other reason? So anaerobic speed reserve. So if you have two athletes, let's say the game is played at 18.5 miles per hour on average, you have athlete A that can reach 22 and athlete B that can reach 19. Player A is going to be able to handle a lot more volume in the game because that's only 84% of their max speed at 18.5. Whereas player B is at 97% of their max speed. Right, so they they can't handle that much high speed running. So an athlete can handle speeds um, above about ninety percent, maybe a hundred yards of of that speed. So getting an athlete faster allows them to handle more volume at high speed, and then also helps them prevent injuries because they're not running at their complete max all the time. All right, so why don't we have buy in? So like we know, okay, running can can literally make you rich and literally keep you bulletproof. Um, it makes you a superhero. So like, why don't we have buy-in? My dad used a beeper until like five years ago, right? He believed that this was like the, I don't know, I've don't, don't not met anyone else in the world that, that used it, but that's how stubborn my dad is, is that he still thought this thing had value, right? So sometimes in sports, we get coaches that are still of the same mindset that they were, you know, came up in, or, hey, I was coached this way, so it must be the right way, right? So some of it's just like stubbornness. Like coaches don't want to change because that's what they that's what they grew up in. And that's what they that's what they all they know. A lot of them think you can't teach speed, right? I think you can, obviously. But a lot of these coaches, when they say that, like you see them do 16 110s for speed work. You see them do crazy workouts that are high volume. So this is where dynamic correspondence comes in. So Yuri Versansky in the early 1990s created dynamic correspondence, basically said that you have to have at least four of these things, really like all five, to, to actually transfer over to the task that you're trying to develop. So if I'm trying to develop speed, I need to have these, these four or five things um, be congruent with what I'm trying to do. So first thing is same muscle groups involved. Second thing is same range of motion and direction of movement. Third thing is same type of muscular contraction. Fourth thing is accentuated regions of force production. And five is magnitude of force and duration applied. So by dynamic correspondence rules, a trap bar deadlift might be a couple of these, but it's not all these things. So if I only trap bar deadlift, if I only lift heavy, if I only run resisted, we're not hitting on the rules of dynamic correspondence. If we need to get speed, we have to be running fast. We have to be getting at least four of these things um, to transfer. The second thing I hear is it's too risky to train. What we found this year working with Arizona is that it's actually risky not to train, especially if you have really fast athletes. So the difference between being risky and being a vaccine or preventing injury is just volume. Right. So it's, it's very similar to how uh, medicine is dosed. It's just dosages. If I take one Tylenol, it's medicine. If I take a hundred, it's poison. Right. So we have to find what's the right dosage. So when we came up with this thing called a sprinting vaccine, we have these seven rules. So the first thing is we need to sprint above 95% at least once a week, which means that we have to have some type of exposure to run as fast as we can or nearly as fast as we can one time a week. Most athletes around the world I found can reach about 95% of their max speed. You're not going to PR every time, 
but running fast is important. The second thing is you need to build a chronic training load of 85% and above speed. So what, what does that mean? A chronic load means the previous three weeks that you just did, you should have a volume of that high speed running, right? You should have some type of, whether it's your practice, whether it's your training, whether it's whatever, you should have some type of exposure to a higher volume of high speed running, right? Third, warm up, simple, but hit speeds while fresh. So don't warm up, do your whole practice, and then have them run sprints after practice, or don't go through a ton of technical work for an hour and then have them run fast. Like warm up and hit a high speed. That's what we found is the best. Uh, rest maximally. Uh, it seems simple, but I can't tell you how many coaches I've talked to that are just like, well, we only have we only have 15 minutes, so we just do a 10 second rest, right? So rest maximally. Fives increase volume by no more than five to 10 percent per week. So if I do five 10 yard sprints um, week one, I'm not going to jump to 10 10 yard sprints week two. Like progression is important. Same way we look at the weight at the weight room. Increasing volume incrementally is incredibly important. Um, sweet spot for reps of 85% and above is five to eight reps per week. So that's um, very low if you really think about it, but making sure that we get that amount of volume of high speed running, which is not like really, really, really high speed running, but making sure we get at least that. And then sweet spot for 95% and above is one to five reps per week. So on the right, um, this is University of Arizona. We did this every week where we looked at percentages of max speed and we made sure the athletes were hitting some reps above 85. 90 was another metric that we looked at. We wanted to make sure they at least hit 90% a couple of times and then looking at the guys who hit 95. The guys who hit 95% continuously were pushing their max speed up, right? It was just dosaging, right? So this brings in the sweet spot of optimal load. Um, this is very similar to Q chronic workload ratio, where you're looking at the previous three weeks and comparing the current week and seeing is your current week more intense or less intense or more volume or less volume. So doing less volume and intensity during that, during that current week can actually be a risk as well. So if you, if you do less than what you should be doing, then that is a risk. If you do more than what you should be doing, that is a risk. So there is a sweet spot. That's why we found the takeaway is that one to five sprints above 95% one time per week was a huge vaccine. Finding that chronic training load at 85%, which allowed the athletes to tolerate more distance and exposures to maximal velocity, and then preventing sharp increases in volume. So progression, progression, progression. Another thing we hear is that coaches don't have time, right? Hey coach, I only got 15 minutes. That's fine. We've seen it work in five to 15 minutes working with us soccer. So when you look at like, what are you doing for speed training? I hear a lot of coaches say, well, we do a skips, B skips, bounding. Then we do, uh, switches. And then we do all these, all these drills. And I'm like, if you got five minutes, I really only focus on one thing. And that's getting the physical development, the power, strength, reactivity, and getting the right stimulus to the right dosages. I wouldn't really focus on the technical. So what takes the most time to develop? What quality is going to take the most time? 
the technical is going to take the longest to develop, right? It's, it's the hardest to change. Changing someone technically is not easy, right? So I would really focus on the physical and the stimulus. So making sure the athletes are getting their exposures to 95%, they're getting the exposures of uh, high speed running at 85%. So best case scenario, you develop physically over time, you microdose technical things with like drills, dribbles, a skips, a waltz, a march, a switch. And then you provide the right stimulus, both in practice and in training to get faster. Okay. So what transfers, right? So, um, we talked a little bit about this in the first one, but a lot of coaches in the beginning, when I was, you know, trying to figure out how to get faster, literally just had me squat more or lift more or jump more. Now all these things transfer, but where do they transfer? It makes it very, very, very important. So if you look at the first five meters, the highest transfer in the first five meters is probably resisted sprinting, followed by jumping, lifting, uh, Olympic lifting and heavy squatting. Those are all going to transfer very highly to, um, changing my first five meters sprinting does as well. It's more of a medium and sort of medicine ball throws what's low plyometric activities. So we have to understand plyometric activities is looking at, um, a short ground contact for plyos about 0.25 seconds or less and depth jumping, those types of things. Like you can, those are plyos. So the difference between explosive jumping and plyos is that plyos are only looking at uh, 0.25 or below ground contact time, which is why it doesn't transfer over as much. If I look at five to 10 meters, uh, sprinting has a high transfer, resisted sprinting has a high transfer. Plyos do now because ground contacts are actually shorter than 0.25 seconds typically in that phase. Um, jumping does as well. Whereas Olympic lifting, medicine ball throws, and heavy squatting have a lot less value. Now I'll jump to 10 to 20. Sprinting becomes very highly correlated. Resisted sprinting does, depending on how heavy plyos. And then you see the medicine ball throws, the jumping, the lifting, and squatting all start to drop off. And as I go further along the continuum, you see that those qualities begin to have less and less value towards the sprint. So this talks about specificity. So knowing that, um, knowing that sprinting has the highest transfer to sprinting and that lifting and heavy lifting, especially has the highest transfer to the early part. We have to think about what are we actually changing when we're doing our training program? So if our training program is highly correlated with lifting heavy, uh, jumping medicine ball throws, all those things like we know, okay, we're probably going to have some very good accelerators, right? Or if our program is focused highly on sprinting track practice and all that. We're gonna have some really, really, really good velocity runners, but maybe not the best accelerators. So we can teach speed to make athletes faster. We just have to make sure that it's very specific to the qualities that we're trying to develop. So if I'm training an athlete, I'm just sprinting. It's not enough. If I'm just squatting, it's not enough. So both camps are right here. We just have to make sure that we're doing, uh, basically like the whole force velocity curve from heavy down to light, but surfing that curve and finding power within there. And power is just force times velocity or load times velocity. We want to figure out how do we get power out of sprinting? And that's working on both ends of that spectrum. Um, a huge thing here 
is if you don't use it, you lose it. So this is training residuals. So the aerobic system can last 30 plus or minus five days. So if I go train for a marathon, I take 30 days off by the rules of detraining, I should not detrain that much. Obviously other qualities will detrain, but I can come back. I can still be competitive in a marathon race. Now my anaerobic system is 18 plus or minus five days. So a little bit less. So if I'm doing repeat sprints, those types of things, those qualities will transfer over if I don't touch on them for 18 plus or minus five days. Maximal strength, 30 plus or minus five days. For some people, it's even more, right? Strength endurance. So think 225 rep bench press, 15 plus or minus five days. They last a long time. Now maximal speed, five plus or minus three days. That's very, very, very low. That could be two days. It could be eight days. But we'll just we'll just pick a pretty average number and say like five to seven days. Every five to seven days, you have to run fast. If you don't, it'll be very, very, very hard to go and run fast after that. So you can't just go pick up like, hey, I haven't run fast in like 45 days and we'll go pick up <laughs> sprinting. You know, that's where injury happens, right? All right, so a lot of coaches tell me, hey, Les, we get a lot of speed stimulus in practice, right? Um, I just posted about this. I do not agree. I think they think they're running fast, but it's not necessarily those upper levels, upper values of speed. Um, so I'll just go through this one quote. Um, Hamstring musculature has vastly different activation patterns as athletes approach max speed. Limiting the value of simply running at greater than 85% of max velocity. So if we just did 85%, it's not enough. Additionally, this increases exponential. So a small difference, which is going from 85 to 92%, for example, may be incredibly significant from a neuromuscular standpoint. Uh, we're giving players a sprint specific stainless in their hamstrings. So in 10 yards, if you were to run 10 yards, most athletes would reach 82 to 86% of their max speed. In 15 yards, you're looking at 89 to 92. And in 20 yards, you're looking at 93 to 96. So if athletes aren't sprinting about 20 yards hard once a week, they're not reaching enough stimulus in practice. And if you look at a lot of high school programs, you've got a lot of even college programs, it's sometimes hard to get those exposures without creating practice to have those exposure, to have those moments where athletes are hitting high speeds. But uh, lastly, um, can you make changes, right? Now, this is a little bit more difficult to understand on this one, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work through in the last couple of minutes here. So this is taken from Jordan Mendiguchia um, and Jonas Dodu did a little bit with this as well, Ken Clark. So what they did is they saw, could, could they make changes in someone's technique in six weeks with a very basic program? So... Answer is yes. There's a test group, there's a control group. The test group did interventions. The control group just, just sprinted. They did nothing but sprint without coaching. Okay, so the test group improved their contact time by 0 0.007. Like, okay, not significant, but it's not. They improved their touchdown distance, meaning how far in front of their body they touched down. They had it closer to the hip, 0 0.02 um, centimeters, 0 0.02 meters. Right, that angular velocity, which is essentially 
the measure of how quickly their thighs transport through the air, how fast they move from peak uh, range of motion back down to the ground, uh, increased by 23 degrees per second. And look at top speed, 0.44 meters per second, which is uh, not great at math, but about one point something miles per hour. That's huge in six weeks. Okay. Now the control group, not significant negative changes, but really no change. Dying velocity, everything got a little bit worse, right? Now that we, we don't know exactly like what cues they were given in the control group or anything like that. But we do know that just the physical training is not enough. Now this is good news for coaches because this means that in my, my opinion, that computers can't come in and take over our jobs. We still need to have relationships. We still need to coach. We still need to cue. We still need to talk to athletes. We still need to help help them. But we're not going to be replaced by our, by robots eventually, right? We have to be able to coach athletes and give interventions and give them very specific cues to get faster. And if you do that, you will change someone's technique in a very short amount of time, okay? Um, now, last thing I'll leave you with is this quote. Time needs to be invested into figuring out what change is necessary or favorable rather than jumping to a predetermined movement template. This is probably the most important thing I'll talk about today. And the reason why this is important is that you can't just go buy a program online and expect to just run athletes through it because we don't know what changes that athlete needs to make, which is why measurement is very important. What we measure, how we measure, how often we measure. The reason why we built universal speed rating is to get athletes measured more frequently and help coaches in our, in their communities or in their speed labs, train the athletes with education. So our platform is all about educating coaches, helping them understand, uh, what changes they need to make based around what they're seeing and be able to make the right decisions, not just by the right program. Thank you for listening to the Less Following Podcast. If you do me two massive favors, first, please rate the podcast and give it five stars if you enjoyed. If you didn't enjoy it, please still give me five stars. <laughs> Second, please share this podcast with another coach, an athlete, or a parent who wants to learn how speed is developed. Thanks again for listening and check out the podcast description to learn more.